I'm a big fan of comic books and superhero movies, as uh, everyone who knows me will attest to, but um, it struck me that so many of them are, you know, kind of cartoony. They're not... Uh, they're lacking in maturity. They're not. They're not really for adults. Yeah, well, comic books are for kids. Anyone will tell you that. It's just silly, silly stories of good and evil. Well, you and I have known each other for a long time. What if I told you that there was finally a superhero movie for adults? I would say that's impossible. Comic books are for kids. Stay tuned for this week's episode. Welcome back to Michael and Us. Uh, I'm Will Sloan. With me, the boy wonder himself. Luke Savage. Hey, guys. So uh, before we move on to today's movie, which is uh, a little film called The Dark Knight Rises. Even saying we, that, we I can We had to stream it from uh, like a really obscure like putlocker stream. <laughs> it was really hard to find. I'll tell you, first of all, before we move on to other business, the reason we chose The Dark Knight Rises was because we had originally planned to do, to do a film called See Arnold Run which was a TV movie about Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, and that movie was just too famous. And yeah. So we decided to go a little more indie direction for this episode. But we couldn't find it, believe it or not. <laughs> it had been removed from YouTube. We may still do it on a future episode. I will have to order a used DVD. And we thought, you know, we didn't want to work too hard for this episode. So why not do, why not do something kind of fun? And I mean, we quite literally couldn't find it. So Will puts forward, as a joke, this idea of The Dark Knight Rises, which is a film that he and I have actually watched before. He subjected it uh, <laughs> me to, to it once. Um, I don't remember it being forced in any way. I remember us... I well, certainly was not particularly willing. You both times of... we watched it, we did it as a joke, <laughs> basically. Uh, anyway, the point is, Will came over, you know, at like 7.30... And uh, we did our usual roundup of, like, junk we watch on the internet, and we talked about people we hate, and we did all the rest <laughs> of it. And, and, um, and you know, that process, it, it always takes a while, but usually that's okay because the film is a trim 90 minutes or whatever. But so at 9.30, we, we decided we're going to do Dark Knight. We then have to download it. So download a nice, uh, clean 1080p version. Wait, you're you telling me we didn't, we didn't see this legally? <laughs> No, we I think purchased we should, it legitimately listen, from Amazon. Yeah, we, and, uh, we, we you gotta it. support the artist because if you don't support the artist, like Christopher Nolan may not be allowed to make another movie. I would hate it if there was like not a fourth movie in the series. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's now like a weeknight and it's past twelve thirty. Uh, we we <laughs> the Dark Knight Rises is literally a hundred and sixty minutes long. Yeah, um, but before we move on to the movie. I want to talk about some current events. The The subject of our last episode, Mr. Gavin McInnes, has actually made a bit of a splash lately. I think like we, I, I don't want to be immodest, but I think we facilitated the Gavin McInnes comeback. Oh, God. <laughs> well, um, you know, for my job, I spent a lot of time working on the right. So uh, I got to do some uh, reporting on, uh, on good old Gavin. And um, it really was incredible to watch his kind of uh, his pivot to full Nazi. What happened in case people are listening to this 500 years from now? Oh, God. So um, so Gavin McInnes really has two outlets. He has the Gavin McInnes show, which I think is the uh, uh, province of something called Compound Media, which you can watch behind a paywall. Uh, and he's on um, The Rebel, which is Ezra Levant's kind of uh, after Sun News collapsed in Canada. 
Um, it's Canada's Breitbart, basically. Yeah, um, much less successful. And I mean, I think heavily, it would be fair to say heavily cashing in on personalities like Gavin McInnes. So, um, you know, the Rebel did this trip to Israel. They did a field trip. and um, At Gavin's behest, he insisted that all of his hosts learn about Israel and how great it is. So, so they go there and, you know, the first thing that happens is Gavin publishes a bunch of videos on his channel where he's basically... You know, questioning the Holocaust and the historical accuracy of it. He's, by the way, like he visited a Holocaust museum, and that was his like conclusion of it. Um, so <laughs> he, he was saying things like, "Well, maybe, maybe we ought to hear the other side of it." I was actually sympathizing with the Nazis, you know. Yeah. So, so and he started talking about like David Irving. <laughs> the uh, he blamed Stalin's mass starvation of the Ukraine on Jewish intellectuals. Um, th- this sent the rebel into damage control mode. But then, uh, you know, having kind of released this video where it's like, here's what Gavin McInnes really thinks about the Holocaust. It's kind of damage control. Rebel then publishes uh, a video of Gavin McInnes titled 10 Things I Hate About Jews, which the headline was later changed to 10 Things I Hate About Israel. But, you know, they left it like in the video. And in an email uh, with Canada Land, I think it was, Ezra Levant said that it was his original headline because he thought it'd be edgy. So any, like, various other things happen in the Rebels trip. You guys can look at, you know, the Canada Land or the Press Progress reporting on it. But uh, the funniest thing was then the week ended with a, a really appalling video uh, that uh, was picked up by Jonathan Goldsby over Canada Land, where uh, basically three of the Rebel staff are sitting around, like, on a kibbutz, I guess, and uh, they're incredibly drunk. Like, uh, many thing, many atrocious things are said uh, that are unspeakable over the course of this, like, one-hour video but at one point they start making fun of Ezra Levan and hurling like <laughs> anti-semitic epithets at him so i mean i don't know this um, is a real dr frankenstein and his monster situation uh, isn't it i mean I, I don't know it's you know it's the self-immolation of the of the far right i guess and i don't know what i don't know kind of what happens now but uh it was certainly pretty appalling to see and i mean some of these things people are saying uh some of the things like mckinnis said and and uh, a few of the other people involved in this saga are uh I just don't know what they were thinking. I'm very curious where Gavin McInnes goes from here. I mean, I kind of feel like his whole career was building up to this point. He was always kind of the hipster contrarian. I mean, it was only fairly recently that he became irredeemably toxic. You know, I would point to that transphobia article for Thought Catalog as the moment when it all went to hell for him. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Actually, the, the real climax of the weekend was... When he did a, a really great tweet where he said, uh, my wife is a pro-choice lib who voted for Hillary and isn't speaking to me right now because a pile of retards think I'm a Nazi. I mean, if you put aside how problematic his choice of language is, it's a really delightful tweet. Oh, my God. <laughs> if you enjoy watching bad people suffer. <laughs> it's great. You know, um, it's nearly 1 a.m. and we've both got a glass of whiskey in our hands. And I guess that means we can uh, we can be mean. And um, I think that, uh, you know, the main subject of our podcast this week is uh, certainly deserving of it. A little movie called The Dark Knight Rises. You've probably seen it. I think it's fair to say we don't we don't have to waste too much time talking about the plot. But uh, you may be wondering, why are we talking about a superhero movie? Normally, we we focus ourselves on, you know, boring agitprop documentaries that have been forgotten, you know, just slacker uprising, total garbage that nobody in their right mind would would ever look at. Why why did we choose a superhero movie? One thing we've complained about on the podcast before, or certainly I've complained about is that is the way that mass culture is kind of used as a proxy for politics. And mm. I think it was perhaps Andrew Breitbart himself who said that um, politics is downstream from culture. And this is, at least in the abstract, uh, I think a foundational cultural belief of both kind of, I don't know, a certain strand of liberalism as well as um, the alt-right. But that's why both are so kind of obsessed with memes and, and like with certain kinds of gestures and, and language and things like that. Both kind of operate on that terrain. And certainly both engage with cultural artifacts like superhero movies, often the kind of liberals to kind of laud them in how progressive they are or perhaps criticize them where they're perceived to uh, be deficient and often for the alt-right in kind of attacking them as uh, mm-hmm. as kind of instruments of, you know, liberal propaganda or, or whatever else. So I feel like even if I don't like that, you know, this is kind of how politics is done today, that's kind of the reality. And certainly 
the Christopher Nolan Batman series is one that a lot of people have talked about as a kind of political statement of one kind or another. Well, blockbuster movies, I mean, in this in this era where everything is so awful and everything seems outside of our control, blockbuster movies are kind of an easy terrain. Like the new Beauty and the Beast movie has a gay character. So people can like claim that as an easy victory. Because it's impossible to do anything in, in real politics, well, at least we can get a gay character into a Disney movie. Right. Um, also, the Christopher Nolan Batman series, I think more than any other franchise, was the one that showed that there was money to be made from kind of prodding at the zeitgeist. So every Marvel superhero movie since then, every DC comic superhero movie, they've all invoked things that are happening in the real world. Mm-hmm. But... Most of them have been kind of fuzzy and non-specific in their politics. Yeah. I would take a movie like Captain America Civil War, which I'm guessing you haven't seen. No, believe it or not, I have not seen that. Well, unlike you, Despite I... my monologue at the beginning, which was 100% in my own voice, by the way. Well, unlike you, I, uh, I, I keep up with this shit. And uh, the interesting thing about Captain America Civil War was the, the uh, Robert Redford character in that movie... I mean, it's been four or five years since I've seen it, so forgive me uh my vagueness but i think he, the listeners will forgive you well <laughs> he's, he's got some sort of a thing okay and it's gonna he's got some sort of a machine that's gonna blow up all all the bad guys in the world all, all the suspected terrorists but there's no due process in there and and the movie comes to the conclusion that well one man shouldn't have that much power you gotta have due process you gotta have all that shit unless it's nick fury nick fury can have all that power because you know, if you knew Nick Fury like I know Nick Fury, <laughs> I, Captain America, you'll know that he's a good guy. Right. So it's like, it can be whatever you want it to be. Like, the Robert Redford character, he can be Obama or he can be George W. Bush. It doesn't matter. It kind of has the flavor of being something that's relevant and subversive. Yeah. The Dark Knight, the second of Christopher Nolan's three Batman movies, I think it's almost more honorable in the sense that it is an actual coherent Republican film. Yeah, yeah. You I know? mean, that one, I remember seeing it in theaters in 2007. And um, I mean, people really gushed about it. But I remember hating it even at the time. Oh, I drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the thesis of that one is that the institutions of law and order, constrained as they are by, you know, principles like habeas mm-hmm. corpus... Um, are inadequate when faced with a, you know, a kind of extra legal threat. And Mm -hmm. so to kind of, to consolidate those very kind of due processes, it's necessary to go beyond them. So you need a form of vigilantism. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially the Bush doctrine as a, as Mm -hmm. a movie. It's essentially the, you know, epistemology of Guantanamo Bay that goes into this. But it's coherent. But it is coherent. And before the last time you and I, uh, subjected ourselves to this movie i'm now conferring the blame onto both of us as you see um a mutual friend of ours alex ross told me you know i was saying to him i think i'm gonna hate this movie and he's like well you might hate it but the politics are too incoherent for you to hate it because of its politics Mm -hmm. and i think there's something to that it's unclear what the politics of this movie are oh and by the way before we go on i just want to say like you know, we to- I feel like we're already taking the movie too seriously. We're like tacitly legitimizing it by like yeah. talking about it. Let's like let's get some digs in it. This is a movie for babies. I can't believe oh, it. Like I can't it, believe it is it. such garbage. It's such trash. Yeah. It's, I, I Holy said during, shit. I said during the movie, like Will kept commenting on the music and how every scene, even the most tepid little scenes, um, have to kind of they have to browbeat you with telling you exactly what the correct emotional response to the scene is there's always there's never not um some music imagine a laugh track but like for every like layer of emotion just throughout the film i said i said about kind of two-thirds away and it's like one long movie trailer Mm -hmm. every every line sounds like a, a sound bite from a trailer every shot like batman and catwoman you know walking out of a building or something looks like it's been shot specifically to go into a trailer you know it's every single moment is kind of a like nudge nudge like get a load of this kind of thing you know in in most movies the music basically corresponds to the action And and in this case it doesn't the music basically sets the mood it tells you what you're supposed to think and in most cases the music is supposed to make you think okay Shit's coming down, you know. <laughs> it's like that's the music that tells you, uh oh, you better get a little scared because something's gonna happen. Or there's the music that's kind of like the, 
<laughs> that's the music that tells you, okay, we're putting the, the chess pieces on the board now, okay? Everything, pay attention, because all of this shit's going to pay off pretty soon. It's like, okay, folks, we got a compelling protagonist. We got, yeah. we got a... We got some obstacles for him to overcome. We got some friends who are gonna come become enemies, some enemies who are gonna become friends. You don't get to judge me just because you were born in the master bedroom of Wayne. Actually, I was born in the Regency room. I started out doing what I had to. Once you've done what you had to, they'll never let you do what you want to. Start fresh. There's no fresh start in today's world. Any 12-year-old with a cell phone could find out what you did. Everything we do is collated and quantified. Everything sticks. Is that how you justify stealing? I take what I need from those who have more than enough. I don't stand on the shoulders of people with less. Robin Hood? I think I do more to help someone than most of the people in this room, than you. I think maybe you're assuming a little too much. Maybe you're being unrealistic about what's really in your pants other than your wallet. Ouch. You think all this can last? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. You and your friends better batten down the hatches, because when it hits, you're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. Should we talk a little bit about uh, the Batman? Uh, what's, the what, the what, Batman. Yeah, what's your relationship with uh, the Batman? Much less than yours. I mean, yeah. um, I think this is a necessary part of the episode, but I think it's a... More the Will Sloan show. Um, <laughs> I mean, I definitely saw the the original Batman. I like. I remember being very excited by some of the McDonald's toys in the early '90s. Batman um, Forever. Batman yeah. Forever. And I remember being. I remember my dad taking me through the McDonald's like drive-through, and I really, really wanted the uh, the Two Face toy. Yeah. Um, did you so, get the Pogs? The Batman Forever I don't Pogs. Know if I, I did have Pogs. I don't remember if I had Batman ones. But I remember my dad, like, he went above and beyond the Call of Duty and asked specifically for the Two-Face toy, but the only one they had was the Riddler. And it took mm-hmm. me some time to get over that. But um, okay. it, it, here I am. I've already done an episode of our sister podcast, The Important Cinema Club, about Batman. But just briefly, I'll say that I was obsessed with Batman as a kid. Uh, I dressed as Batman for three consecutive Halloweens. One of my favorite stories, before you go on, is... The one about your mom making you the Batman costume and and your reaction to it. Well, she made me a Batman costume and I was afraid to wear it because it was like almost too powerful. You had too much reverence for it. Yeah, like I almost felt like I wasn't worthy to wear it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I watched uh, the Adam West show every day after school. I watched, you know, the the cartoon show, Every Incarnation, Mm. you know, the Tim Burton movies. I watched them endlessly. I still vividly remember seeing Batman Forever in a theater in the front row because I wanted to be totally immersed in it. Had all the comic books, had all the merch. Like there were a solid four or five years of my life that were just nonstop Batman. You know, I still enjoy Batman. I still, whenever there's a Batman movie out, you can depend on me going to see it. You went to see, to your utter disgrace, frankly, you went to see the Lego Batman movie. How fucking dare you? You know, the Lego (laughs) Batman movie, if you put aside the fact that just the idea of a Lego Batman movie is ideologically disgraceful. <laughs> it's a fun movie. It's a corru- it's a corruption of both Batman and Lego, in my opinion. Well, you haven't seen it. I've seen it, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm telling you that if you if you go in and you're willing to accept the idea that a Lego Batman movie is allowed to exist, it's a good one. It's the best possible Lego Batman movie. <laughs> but you know, as I grow older, I mean. Let's face it, Batman is a nostalgia brand for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's only so far into adulthood when you can actually like cling on to Batman. And yet a lot of people really dig this stuff. Right? Well, I would say for me, the Batmans that I still hold the closest to my heart are... Michael the, Keaton. Well, there's the Michael Keaton, Tim Burton one, and there's the Adam West one. And I think the reason that I hold on to them uh, is because they're the ones that take the Batman mythos the least seriously. The Adam West one is basically a parody of Batman, and in the in the Tim Burton films, you know, Batman's essentially a psychotic, you know, neurotic guy. Mm. You know, I think that once you start actually taking Batman's, um, you know, war on crime seriously, it, it gets a little ridiculous. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I don't even I don't even want to go over like the familiar complaints that it's like a rich guy beating up no. poor people. It's so cliche. Yeah. Um, um, but I mean, I, the, for this movie, I mean, I guess we'll have to talk about the politics of it, whatever they are. But it was just so hard for me to get past the 
I don't know, the, the sheer emptiness of the thing. I mean, it's 160 minutes. It's the length of a longish Tarkovsky or Fellini movie. <laughs> I mean, for all of his alleged technical mastery, for all of the comparisons that Christopher Nolan gets to Kubrick, I can't believe... You, you kept saying that throughout the film. I thought you were joking. That's a thing. No, people compare him, but... and I think that's... So all the, all the people that have never seen an actual Kubrick movie. Well, I mean, there are certain shots in this movie that are almost like designed to evoke comparisons to Kubrick. Mm. But, but I mean, like the guy shoots the, his movies like it's fucking prestige TV. TV. Yeah. I mean, it has this like beige, like dull as dishwater look to it. Everything's shot in some boardroom. It's, yeah. it's the most boring looking movie. And all the sets, I mean, there's that section of the movie where Batman is thrown into the hell pit and he's supposed to like, oh, let's talk he's supposed to pit. rediscover the eye of the tiger, basically. Yeah. And it looks like fucking Frank Lloyd Wright designed it. Yeah, I mean, and, and this hell pit that Bane is, okay, so let's It's got talk, electricity, it's got TV. Let's talk about the hell pit. Yeah, so, yeah. so, you know, the, the first, you know, I don't know. 10 hours of the film are about, are about how are about how batman bruce wayne is little he's withdrawn from public life or whatever he's kind of because he's I, walking with a cane he's, now he's walking with a cane because the maggie gyllenhaal love interest from the previous film died to be replaced by two uh, other disposable heroines in this movie and then like i don't know the michael kane the butler guy is like telling him alfred to, alfred is telling him to like give back in a constructive way and i don't know something happens and he decides to be the 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 batman again and um gets into a fight with bane and you know doesn't bring guns because he doesn't believe in it and then he just has like a fist fight with bane and gets beaten up it's like if you guys remember the movie rocky 3 you'll recall that rocky got a little bit too confident with the fact that he was the world champion and then along comes mr t who is, you know, younger, stronger, faster, yeah. of course, beats him up. So yeah. what does Rocky have to do? He has to go to that Apollo Creed's gym in San Francisco. Break some into a cup. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then and then he has to rediscover the eye of the tiger. Well, this is basically the same plot, but twice as long. So, so having uh, broken Batman's back in a fight, Bane, for some reason, <laughs> I mean, we don't see it, but I mean, the implication <laughs> is he flies with Batman to the Middle East they took a commercial flight. It was like, American Airlines. I guess they took American Airlines or one of these new discount, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the nonstop to, uh, you know, Qatar or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, basically buries Batman in the desert in this big, you know, hole in the ground that, as Will said, it looks like it's, it's like this beautiful kind of artisanal tunnel. Mm -hmm. And Batman is stuck at the bottom of it. And it's supposed to be kind of this eternal hell pit. And yet, uh, for some reason, there's TV there's this weird culture among the inmates where they're all basically like really friendly with one another. Um, they're all rooting for each other to escape. They're all chanting as they escape. Yeah, every so often one of them just like tries to climb the wall on a rope and they all cheer. Why don't they just want to stay? They've got a great community. They're apparently able to, you know, wander at will. You'd think if they had such collective rapport, they might think of maybe a, a collective solution to <laughs> yeah. escaping. I mean... Uh, we, I don't You're think we, a fucking communist, we, though. That's we, your problem. We, like, yeah, it always comes back to collectivism for you. We don't. We don't see any. Uh, we don't see any like real guards. Like the guards just like nicely facilitate people trying to escape. Yeah. Um. And uh, there's just these two sagely. I'm not sure why there's two sagely old men. Why there couldn't just be one. Well, there's one who can't speak English, and there's one who can. That's right. Um. Uh, yeah, there's 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 one who's just the generic Orientalist <laughs> archetype who's plucked in the middle. Uh, can we talk about the Liam Neeson cameo here? Oh, I, I, yeah, I really enjoy. Well, it. Luke <laughs> hasn't seen Batman Begins, but uh, anyone uh, life, life is life is finite. Come well, on. you know, I was making the case that Batman Begins is the best of these films because it's the one that's the most a superhero film. Okay, but, but you haven't watched it. You I haven't just, seen it in, you know, know seven or eight years. So who knows? Like, it's probably shit. So Liam Neeson's in that, right? And he's yeah. like, and he's what? A Can I just say that when we were both at the varsity, mm -hmm. I'm just going to come clean here. Uh, the Dark Knight was on my list of the top 10 movies of the decade. Oh, wow. And if I could take that back, I would. Um, <laughs> that I think I think I called it, you know, I was what, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. I was just a kid. Mm -hmm. I, I called it. I believe an epic treatise on vigilantism. Oh my god! I mean, just shameful. You, you said shameful. Uh, you said there was Oscar buzz. Okay, man. <laughs> yeah, I probably um, did. Uh, actually, before we get back to the Liam Neeson cameo, I, I have one other like Varsity Batman related. Well, two others actually. One of them was that you interviewed Adam West oh, on the phone god. in the line, which was wonderful. So my, <laughs> so I interviewed 
Mr. Adam West. I remember when I was a kid watching Batman on TV and knowing that there were conventions that he was at and being so frustrated that I would never be able to meet him. So I did talk to him on the phone once in, I believe, 2009 or 2010 when he was going to appear at a Comic-Con here in Toronto. He was so nice to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I asked him, I I talked to him about his appearance on Look Well. Uh, I talked to him, you know, I talked a lot about Batman stuff. I talked to him about working with the Three Stooges. I love his presence in Family Guy. Oh, he's great. Yeah. And then at, at the end of the conversation, I said, listen, I know you hear this a lot, but thanks for being my childhood hero. Aww. And Adam West said to me, in his inimitable baritone, he said, uh, oh, I never get tired of hearing that. And then, of course, I come out into the main room and Luke's there yeah. and I'm like buzzing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it was just one of the, honestly, one of the best moments of my life. <laughs> so the other memory I have was that um, we were in the midst of a masthead meeting and um, you were sitting on one side of me and, you know, we're just doing the regular business of like a student newspaper, you know, it's like a Monday evening mm-hmm. or something. We're like looking at the past issue and this conversation, like maybe 15 people in the room were talking, you know, we're having a meeting. And um, I'd had this, like, I guess, notepad beside me or something. And um, in the course of the meeting, you'd, like, I guess, grabbed it and you were, like, doodling on it. And I kind of just, like, reached for it because I want to make a note or something. And I pull it over and and you've drawn, there's, like, a little picture of Batman on it, like, looking fierce. And there was a caption which read, this piece of paper certified crime free. (laughs) And I nearly lost my shit. It was really hard to keep composure in the meeting. Someone else was speaking, and I was, like, having to fight back with laughter. I'm not afraid of you, Catwoman. I'm, I'm, uh, you're very beautiful, Catwoman. Yes, you're quite right. I am. Your propinquity could make a man forget himself. I don't know what that means, but... It sure sounds nice. I refer to the nearness of you. Batman! Let's throw caution to the winds. I mean, after all, we are two adult human beings, and uh, we're both interested in the same thing. Happiness. I can give you more happiness than anyone in the world. How do you propose to do that? By being your partner in life. I mean, it's me and you against the world. Oh. What about Robin? Well, I have him killed, painlessly. Well, he is a bit of a boy with his holy this and holy that. How does it, Catwoman? I thought you had a modicum of decency, but I see that I erred in my judgment. Anyway, oh, speaking of fighting back laughter, so this fucking Liam Neeson cameo. So... I don't. I haven't seen the Batman Begins or whatever, but he just so he appears in this and he's like it's it's a dream or something. Yeah. But then as the the sort of you know phantom of you know the ghost of Liam Neeson past or whatever is talking to Christian Bale. Christian Bale says something like, "Oh, when you were in the militia or something." They're like recounting some story, and just for like two and a half seconds, <laughs> it cuts to a guy who I guess is in the militia, and it's supposed to be the young Liam Neeson character. And it's categorically not Liam Neeson. Yeah, like, they it's decided... just some guy with a goatee and he's walking up a hill. It's it's a guy with a goatee and, like, you know, some sort of, like, jaw structure where maybe, like, you know, one in 10,000 people he met be like, hey, man, you kind of look like Liam Neeson. I mean, just <laughs> pathetic. Like, what I want to know, A, what was the thinking of putting this in? Like, Christopher Nolan thought this was necessary to include the shot. They, they hired a guy... Who, okay, was then able to say to his friends, yeah, I was in The Dark Knight Rises. I played, <laughs> I played like, the master of the Shadow Guild or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like, <laughs> I, I, just, I just think that's worth entering to the record, and it's perhaps a detail of this film that's uh, been omitted from the scholarship thus far. I think you're right. I have nothing to add to that, but I think we should maybe perhaps move on to well, the politics. So he of- es- but he escapes from the pit. Right. He escapes from the pit. Yeah. We, on, he, on the third okay, here, here's the thing about Christopher Nolan. He will spend, like, hours of the film telling you the minutiae of just shit you don't care about. Like, you know, how did how did Bain find, you know, the, the money to fund the, the Wall Street 
uh, crash yeah. or what, whatever. What, what precise uh, chemicals were involved in the yeah. bombs that came? Yeah, how did Bane transport Bane. the nuclear weapon from beneath the Gotham to, to this place? He'll spend hours on that, but he will not fill you in on the stuff you actually care about, which is how did... Bruce Wayne get from the Middle East to Gotham City. He, he literally climbs in his hole and he's basically just in yeah. the desert. And it's like, how did he get He doesn't back? have a wallet. And meanwhile, by the time he's traveling back, Bane is like sealed off the city. So somehow he gets yeah. back in. He shows up. He meets Anne Hathaway on a bridge. He's just been to like some upscale Mark's Work warehouse or something. <laughs> and he's like got this like... He, like, he, he, you know, he looks like he's out of a fucking like... Like a commercial or something. He's got this amazing like outfit on. Yeah. Like... And he's holding one of the MacGuffins of the movie, which is that he's got this, in his hand, this, like, USB drive, which can delete your entire online presence. Which is all Catwoman wants in the movie. Because she wants to have a fresh start. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is an unconvincing arc for her character, I have to say. But uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, the the politics of the film. That's why we're Uh, here, after all. I was trying to, I've been procrastinating, like, I've been just... Well, I don't know, is there there any other dumb shit you want to talk about in the movie? I mean, do you want to talk... Can we we read the Peter Travers review? Oh, yeah, let's find it. (laughs) Okay, so, I think Peter Travers, you know, I shouldn't burn bridges or anything, but I think Peter Travers is a pretty easy target uh critic for rolling stone magazine uh peter travers of course is a pulse pounding thrill ride takes you on the wings of imagination he's the greatest critic in america his review begins with audiences will be arguing forever about director christopher nolan's capper to his batman trilogy want a bitch start with the reactionary politics and that franchise feeder of an ending but the sheer scope of Nolan's vision, with emotion and spectacle and thundering across the screen, is staggering. The Dark Knight Rises is the king daddy of summer movie epics. For nearly three hours, don't, actually, you know, Travers gets at a point I want to raise about the movie, which is the style of its storytelling. This movie is 160 minutes. It could be 90 minutes. Every scene is longer. There are too many scenes in the movie. There's like five times the number of characters there need to be. This is part of Nolan's strategy. He wants to intimidate you. He wa- right. He wants yeah. to beat you into submission. He has so many characters. There are so many characters in this movie that uh, could be just condensed into Matthew Modine's character, <laughs> the the uh, chief of police or whatever. Yeah. Um, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character doesn't need to exist. Yeah, he wants... He, he, he achieves nothing in the movie. Yeah, like Nolan wants you to be confused. The film is so kind of baroque and it hits you with so much that, you know, a lot of people are kind of left thinking they like they just haven't got it. And the thing is, there's nothing to fucking get. It's a garbage movie. Okay, this is my favorite part of the Peter Travers review. He says, <laughs> is Nolan equating the legit protest of Occupy Wall Street with Bane's terrorism? You be the judge. Okay, that's a great dodge, isn't it? Because, like, that's basically him saying... Here, why don't you do my work for I'm me? I'm the professional reviewer, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but you know I'm just gonna let you weigh in on the politics yeah. of the movie. Yeah, and to to which I say, fuck you. Why don't you pay me your salary? Yeah, and then I'll I'll just <laughs> anyway. Uh, my my answer to Peter Travis is that yes, he is acquainting the legit protest. I think I think so because um, yeah. because that scene where the Bane kind of militias are kind of pillaging you know Fifth Avenue or whatever. It does seem to be, and you know, he's Bane's giving. You know, this movie is just—it's saturated with these pretentious Bane monologues. Uh, you know, Bane. Spoils the, will be had. <laughs> uh, Wealth <laughs> will be spread. That's right. Uh, uh, like um, all that was taken from you will be restored. You know, it's full of shit. There's like a new order. <laughs> but there's nothing coherent about the movie's politics, though, because like Nolan is really just throwing anything at the wall and seeing what sticks. So take the end of the last movie, The Dark Knight. Like, you think this is a coherent political statement. Uh, but we find out that, you know, let's call them ethical violations mm. that uh, that Commissioner Gordon and Batman have committed. They've been used to create the Dent Act, mm. which is has enhanced the powers of law enforcement to basically lock up whoever they want. And, and basically it's... That's ended organized crime in the city. Yeah, it's rid the city of crime. It's gotten, it's gotten the bureaucrats and the politicians out of the way, and it's just let the boys in blue do their job. But basically we find out change. that a law founded on lies rots from the inside. And we find that out in the scene in which Joseph Gordon-Levitt says to Commissioner Gordon, looks like your hands are pretty dirty. You betrayed your, you betrayed your principles. Those men locked up for eight years in Blackgate. 
and denied parole under the Dent Act based on a lie. Gotham needed a hero. It needs it now more than ever. You betrayed everything you stood for. That's the point. Far there when the structures fail you, when the robots aren't weapons anymore, they're shackles, letting the bad guy get ahead. One day, you may face such a moment of crisis, and in that moment, I hope you have a friend like I did. To plunge their hands into the filth, so that you can keep yours clean. Your hands look plenty filthy to me, Commissioner. So basically, Nolan is putting the ending of The Dark Knight under the microscope. Mm-hmm. Except he isn't, actually, because actually... Because the whole thesis of the movie is yeah. that without, like, the cops, the entire city just dissolves into anarchy. Unless, yeah. you, have, unless you have, like... Armed yeah. coercion, like they just they just kill each other and plunder and the Dent Act worked. Bane's uprising has nothing to do no. with the Dent Act. No, if anything, I mean the police are unable with the Dent Act yeah. to stop Bane. So what's that about? Yeah, they still need it's. But you're you know, you're right to say it's it's putting the ending of the Dark Knight under the microscope. But then the thesis is then Batman has to come in and like still save everything. So it's just a a reassertion of the same device basically now there's a bit of an occupy wall street current to this film where basically it's suggesting that the wealthy of gotham have not done their duty they've not uh, cared for the underclasses like they ought to have mm. um because uh due to i don't know tax cuts whatever uh whatever the, fuck, the, yeah. the orphanage system basically ends when they're 18 and after that the at-risk youth of the city are basically thrown out on their own and forced to fend for themselves and what do they do they go live in the sewer and they work for bane because he's the only one offering them employment and he's able to rally their class resentment <laughs> to do a storming of the bastille and take over the upper east side of gotham now now um Call me crazy here, but that seems eerily reminiscent of a, <laughs> of, a, of a contemporary politician of some... I'm having trouble putting my finger on which... Well, you know, it reminds me of a, a senator from Vermont. But... <laughs> <laughs> there were, there so were... there, is a, there is a very, like, a charged scene where, you know, all of Bane's army take over, you know, the Upper East Side, basically, and we see them, like pulling doormen out of buildings and you know throwing around the mink coats and such the, the real the real victim of uh <laughs> chaos and terror and disorder will be Saks fifth avenue so catwoman played by anne hathaway in a terrible performance in my opinion truly uh, awful yeah just like you know a ninth grade drama student trying to be seductive mm-hmm. give me michelle pfeiffer any day <laughs> But the thing, great thing about Catwoman is that, you know, she seems like just an ordinary woman, but but she's like dangerously sexy, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, she tells Bruce Wayne that, you know, you guys, you you rich people, you've you've lived so high on the hog for so long. Well, pretty soon a storm's coming and it's going to it's going <laughs> to take you down. Um, Christian Bale is also, I think, pretty wooden and just like oh, yeah. and also, OK. Here's, here's another thing about this movie, is it's called The Dark Knight Rises, but Batman is hardly in this movie. And when he fights, yeah. you know, he's just like a generic, like, punching... He has a flying contraption, which basically, you know, pretty sure, like, you know, any ex-military asshole could probably fly this, like, thing that, that Morgan Freeman designs for him. Mm-hmm. So his powers amount to that, and basically you know, badly fist-fighting Bane. His armor is incapable of stopping, like, someone who, like, stabs him in the in the <laughs> side. Like, he's pretty bad. He gets, you know... Okay, you remember that scene where the police corner Batman and he goes into an alley and they're like, look look at this guy. We're, we're gonna get this guy. And then he flies out in his bat plane. Yeah. And they all look at each other like, oh, 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 the man's well, gonna have my ass. What, what, what are we gonna do? <laughs> and, of course, and of course they're not, and of course it's impossible to follow a plane in Gotham City, right? It's impossible to notice that lands on the, the roof of Wayne Enterprises. And yeah, just, giant building in they, the middle of they, Manhattan. They put basically. a fucking tarp over <laughs> yeah. it. Um, but, oh god, what, oh, so anyway, back to my point about politics <laughs> so catwoman says to bruce wayne listen there's going to be a class uprising we're going to take you down and so christopher nolan is basically acknowledging yes the upper classes have failed the lower classes the upper classes should have done more and so what's the solution to this 
Well, listen, we got to give the power back to the upper classes, but they have to be really they careful be with, with it. it. Yeah. So what, what are we going to do? We're going to turn Wayne Manor into an orphanage. That'll and, fix everything. And the, and there's it's kind of insinuated that if, if there had been an orphanage, then ba- like Bane's entire... Bane is like a psychopath who's yeah. going to like blow up one of the biggest cities in the world with a nuclear weapon. But it turns out you can explain that all through these like daddy issues, basically. <laughs> Like what? What we need is just is just uh, more responsible rich people and a greater assertion of traditional patriarchal mm. authority, and mm. everything will be fine. Yeah, there'll be no disorder or nothing, no terrorism, organized crime. We take Gotham from the corrupt, <laughs> the rich, the oppressors of generations who have kept you down with myths of opportunity, and we give it back to you. The people. Gotham is yours. None shall interfere. Do as you please. And step forward those who would serve. For an army will be raised. The powerful will be ripped from their decadent nests. And out into the cold world that we know and endure. Anyway, Batman saves the day, of course. Uh, he blows up a nuclear bomb in Gotham Harbor. Yeah, there's like a bomb. A, a nuclear warhead is detonated sort of 30 kilometers off the coast of New York and everyone like cheers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just fine. And, uh, and you, you, you know what moment I liked was that before Batman, I liked the moment when we see a tattered American flag flying in the wind. That was probably my favorite. <laughs> it was a real Blue Lives Matter type <laughs> yeah. of moment. Um, I liked where Batman staged his, his heroic intervention against bane his final counterattack, uh in which you know bane is just killed in like the most banal like and hathaway just like oh yeah shoots a gun at him and then you never see bane again well we spent two hours like fearing mm. bane as the ultimate <laughs> villain and then we find out actually bane is just like a pawn of marion cotillard and oh let's who, just who, shoot fucking bane we know from one scene because like <laughs> she like made out with bat or like slept with batman or whatever yeah. but uh i like where batman stages his heroic like storming liberation of of uh, gotham city and uh he manages to like light up the bridge with the bat logo yeah which means that with with just fuel that they light on fire which means that like Bruce Wayne had to go up there with like a paintbrush and like perfectly yeah. paint. Okay, this is an example of the stuff that Nolan doesn't show you. Like yeah. he's so interested in the minutia of stuff that doesn't matter. Like how did Morgan Freeman get from this building to this building to negotiate a deal for this for this? But he doesn't show you how did how did Bruce Wayne paint the bat signal on the bridge? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Like who put that there? And also why was that necessary as like why is that even good strategy to let like Bane know that you're you're there? Well, while we're just fetching about like stupid shit in the movie how did you like uh the way that bane holds his hands in on his jacket like he does this thing with his hands the whole time it's like napoleon putting his like hand in his jacket yeah like, it's he does it in every single scene uh or another stupid and it looks thing. really like it's a really it's a really strange you just you just know that tom hardy did that on the set and christopher nolan was like yeah i like that tom, you're really yeah, nailing the yeah tom hardy was just like i feel like bane should have a thing that he does <laughs> yeah and because tom hardy's just like well my whole face is covered in this movie maybe i should do a thing to like impose myself on this character <laughs> <laughs> another stupid thing is uh in the famous scene where bane uh, unleashes his terror by uh storming that that all-american institution the football game oh yeah um <laughs> like in the middle of the national anthem uh, he blows up the field, revealing underneath that for some reason this gigantic football stadium has just been built on like a giant sinkhole. You know what it looks like? If you go to the Roman, like the Colosseum in Rome, what you see today is the floor is gone and underneath is like mm. all of the, the passageways where they kept the lions and like the gladiators and the slaves before they, you know, put them up to kill each other before the yeah. crowd. And it looks like they built the uh, the football <laughs> stadium in New York City on the same thing. Like there's just this massive chasm underneath and... I'm just going to put it out there that, like, I'm no expert on football stadium construction, but I don't think that's how they work. But, you know, that scene, I think, shows uh, Nolan's brilliance because, uh, you know, you hear the national anthem, you see football players, you see Americans in the audience, you see it cuts to um, literally all of the police in Gotham storming the sewers. Yeah. Like, what is more American than all of this? And, <laughs> and you know, what is more un-American than Bane destroying it all? <laughs> 
Isn't that crazy that Commissioner Gordon sent literally every single police officer into the sewer, <laughs> all of them, to find Bane? <laughs> you know, I'm worried. This is you know. Should have left a few on the ground, maybe. <laughs> this is a this is a fun like route of this movie, but I'm worried we're getting to that ter- territory where it's like, isn't it funny that in in Friends they're 25 years old and they oh, can, yeah. and they can afford really well. The thing is, apartments. everybody already deconstructed this movie four years ago or whenever it came out. <laughs> Um, this movie's it's when did it come out it's not 2012 it came out in in the year of the uh obama re-election i honestly Just, is there anything we can mine from that i like, don't know uh, yeah like let's see what loose po- hack points we can extrapolate from that. um occupy wall street uh yeah i don't know um it's a very political film i think it's fair to say <laughs> okay here's what i think here's what i actually think about the film's politics i agree with everything you said about mm-hmm. like I mean, in answer to Peter Travers' like hack question, Nolan is equating Bane with Occupy Wall Street. At the same time, the film it's too it's too disingenuous, it's too scattered, it's too incoherent to even own that. Yeah, like I would have more respect for this movie if it was just a straight up like fascist movie. Mm-hmm. Can't even own that because it's too. Um, like, like you said, uh, I think near the beginning of the episode that, you know, a lot of these big blockbusters, all they can really do is kind of evoke these kind of feelings and moods, you know, they evoke kind of things you recognize. So there's sort of this vague, like 9-11 imagery in this movie and various other things. But, you know, one of the problems with doing that is, you know, you you don't create anything coherent, you know, Mm. there's no, there's no real vision to this movie. I mean, everything about it is so sterile. I mean, I mean, forget the politics. For all the talk that Christopher Nolan is some kind of great auteur, I mean, we've talked about the aesthetic of the movie. I mean, it's just so boring and sterile. And, and this is supposed to be the gritty, you know, the yeah. gritty movie. And everything in it looks so synthetic. And I, I think I'm even more anti, you know, modern blockbuster than you. I mean, I, we talked about Rogue One on that previous episode. But that's pretty much how I receive all movies like this. Just for once, I would like, you know... Take half the budget, a third of the budget of one of these movies and give it to somebody that actually has like a decent idea for a movie that's actually interesting. Just let them let them run with it and see what they do. Um, these movies are coming out. It's amazing how there's an inverse relationship. I feel like there's a new one every single like month almost that is treated as a world historic event and for mm-hmm. like a month. And then no one remembers it two months later because there's another one. And um, these movies are totally disposable, and the more disposable they get, the more expensive they are, the flashier they are. And there's only so many ways you can kind of... I think Christopher Nolan sort of... I I mean, I think it would be correct to somewhat credit him with this idea of, you know, what if the superhero movie was, like, edgy for adults, you know? But I feel like every superhero movie now, and every Mm -hmm. kind of blockbuster to some extent is kind of living... It's working within that framework and there's only so many takes you can do right there's like the campy guardians of the galaxy sort of thing what is that awful um is it deadpool where it's just rude and vulgar and, and like this can't lie. and there's also there's only so many of these like tired franchises to reboot and then we're now in the reboots of the reboots how long well, can this last i think what's sad about you know blockbuster movies since this movie came out is I mean say what you will about christopher nolan but uh you know his batman series were decisively christopher nolan films they are they are definitely his vision tim burton's batman i don't know i wouldn't know the difference well tim burton's batman movies are certainly tim burton's batman movies but you know uh, it's got to the point where you know because they're all they're all these like expanded universe films where every one movie has to be a trailer for the next one right um you know all the movies are just sort of interchangeable they all have kind of the same look and All of them are kind of leading into the next one. It always ends with some promise that, well, okay, we, we beat the last villain, but the next villain's going to be even bigger. And they all, I mean, it's Which just like... there's no stakes as well. Well, it's just like every episode looks... looks or every movie... Well, fe- I mean, that's a, that's yeah. a, that's a top <laughs> slip-up, I think. Well, every, uh, fe- every movie feels like just an episode of a prestige TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and they're, they all have these kind of, like, built-in themes mm-hmm. about, you know, the surveillance state or, yeah. or whatever that just, like never come to any particular conclusion and it's just kind of the stairway to nowhere Mm. yeah and i mean i guess one other comment about since we're just trashing blockbusters now and i think that's how we're gonna we're gonna uh finish up the episode um there's a there's a a wonderful book you introduced me to uh by jay hoberman film after film 
right, which begins mm. with that great essay, uh, The Myth of the Myth of Total Cinema, where he's talking about an essay, I guess it was by Andre Bazin, is that right? Uh, I can't the, remember, the but sure. The Myth of Total Cinema, I think it was Andre Bazin, which was kind of about um, how, it was, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a staple of film studies, uh, quite an old essay. And, you know, he was basically talking about how film was an extension of photography, and film was kind of tending towards a closer and closer adaptation of reality. So eventually you'd get, you know, film would sort of almost be just like pure, you'd have pure cinema. And that was kind of the, the promise of film, the mythos mm-hmm. of film. And, uh, you know, Jay Hoberman, I guess it was sort of in response to films like The Matrix and, and it, to kind of the early CGI movies. You know, he wrote a critique of this and he said it's completely wrong because the thing about CGI is it allows you, it allows you to manipulate reality so perfectly. Mm. Um, and I think that that, to me anyway, is one of the main aesthetic deficiencies of a film like this and of all the other films, I mean, really every modern blockbuster, because what happens is the environments become totally disposable. They become, you know, purely um, destructible, almost like when you're in a video game or something and you just kind of casually shoot at whatever and like nothing has any stakes. And so there's no consequences to anything. I mean, half of New York can get blown up. You don't care. Like, you know, uh, Captain America gets thrown through a building in a fight and it doesn't, you know, in a movie, you know, made before like 1995, that would be like a really big deal. Somebody getting thrown through a building. It might even be, you know, an iconic moment in a film. And now just the whole, like every movie is just like that the whole way through. Um, And I think it, I don't know, it leads to a really kind of, um, a really disposable kind of throwaway type of uh, type of cinema that I don't think really offers very much and can at best uh, at best it's just kind of cheap uh, digestible entertainment like uh, you know like fast food or something but it leaves you uh, unsatisfied at the end just like your kind of third bite of any Popeye's meal or whatever a ticking bomb means trouble for Batman and Robin Holy breaking and entering! It's Batgirl! Quick, Batgirl, untie us before it's too late. It's already too late. I've worked for you a long time and I'm paid less than Robin. Same job, same employer means equal pay for men and women. No time for jokes, Batgirl. It's no joke. It's the federal equal pay law. Holy act of Congress! If you're not getting equal pay, contact the Wage and Hour Division, U.S. Department of Labor. You know, I think you're a bit of a snob, and I've got a, an idea for a movie franchise that I think like could be big. I've, so we got this guy. He's played by Sam Rockwell. Huh. He's a sailor. He's got one eye, but you huh. know, he's got one eye closed the whole time. He's he, you know he's muscular. He's sailing around. He's looking for his pappy, and he he sails up to this uh, port city of Sweet Haven. You know, it's it's kind of like the Nolan Gotham, but uh, you know the the docks uh, are are basically ruled by a merciless slumlord by the name of Bluto. Wow. Uh, you know, he, he rules over this area with an so iron he's, fist. He's like, a, he's like a robber baron. Yeah, kind of. And, you know, like he, he taxes them mercilessly. Basically, it's a lot of kind of like illegal aliens, a lot of refugees who live there. Huh. Um, but there's one family in particular that, you know, he focuses on. It's the oil family. And the youngest member of the family, the one that he takes a real liking to, is this uh, young, uh, young Hispanic girl by the name of Olive. Huh. Um, now, Sailor. They mm-hmm. call him Sailor. Sailor, uh, you know, sails up to this town and he finds himself in here in this in this bizarre place where everyone fears this this Commodore wields his taxation like an iron fist. But he strikes up a friendship with this olive. Um, Meanwhile, he also finds uh, this street smart guy. Uh, I think he'll be played by maybe Michael B. Jordan or Kevin Hart. Mm. Um, His name. They call him the wimp. Um, he's known to haunt the local McDonald's, um, and he'll give, he'll give Sailor some information on what's happening in town. You know, uh, maybe, you know, uh, I'll I'll give you some information for a hamburger today. (laughs) Um, what's, I mean, you, you know, I was, I was, um, I confess a, a, a doubter at first, but you're really selling me on it. So what is the Phillips denouement? Well, all of finds herself in a bit of a love triangle with Bluto and Sailor and, you know, things quickly become violent. You know, Bluto puts his mob on Sailor. Of course, a guy, you know, a two-fisted guy like Sailor can easily take them all. Mm. So eventually, you know, Bluto has to finally finally take him on his own. Two of them have a spectacular fight by the docks. Mm. Uh, it, it all climaxes, you know, Sailor's down. He's down for the count. 
Bluto's over him. He he's smiling. What a, you're gonna tell me that Sailor has some kind of uh, secret weapon? Well, or... well, what happens? Uh, Bluto just happens to be standing underneath this enormous crate of spinach. Oh no! Falls right on him. Uh, anyway, as uh, Sailor's sailing away, you know he wants to stay with Olive. He wants to stay with uh, Olive's illegitimate child, Sweepy. <laughs> um, but uh, and he'll always be a father figure to Sweepy. But you know, frankly, he's he's got to find his pappy, and he's a man of the sea. So he's sailing off, and uh, I believe it's I believe it's Roughhouse, the local uh, the the local meat merchant, who says <laughs> who says to the wimp, "Who was that guy anyway?" And the wimp says. I hear they call him the Popeye. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love it. It's, it's, it's so alive. And I mean, I, it's obviously it's action packed, but I mean, it, it really, de- it's topical. You know, it deals with so many pressing current issues. Well, there's class, there's politics, there's taxation. There's Race uh, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I know if there's anybody listening to this who's at any of the big studios, um, you know, I'm happy to hear it. But um, in the meantime, I think it's probably about time we signed off. My name was Will Sloan. My name was Luke Savage. Now watch this drive. Oh, I got a live one here. <laughs> Dance with the devil in the pale.